0: Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. All week through WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, we've delved into the need for more emergency housing during times of crisis. And since a 7.0 magnitude earthquake hit Haiti in 2010, housing is just one of the major challenges that remains for the Caribbean country. Fordham professor, Dr. Martiana Propescu, knows firsthand about the struggles facing the people of Haiti. She designed a course that takes Fordham students from the classroom to different countries where they receive on-site disaster aid experience. I met Dr. Popescu at her Lincoln Center office, where she shared her observations following a trip to Haiti.
1: We went in Haiti several times already, and our first very short trip to Haiti was before the earthquake in 2010. We went there in 2008, and what we did, we actually focused on Haitian Bateas in the Dominican Republic. I took a group of students there, I'm teaching an international development class, so part of that class, they uh, were supposed to learn about community building with hands-on experiences. So in the process, we decided to cross the border and see the reality in Haiti. So that was our first time in Haiti. Um, poverty was abysmal before the earthquake. Many people like talk about the earthquake as being the disaster, well... That was just another disaster, because Haiti was living through an ongoing disaster. Actually, if you look at statistics, before the earthquake, 56% of the population of Haiti lived in extreme poverty, meaning less than $1.25 a day. And 77% of the population lived with less than $2 a day, which based on uh, the United Nations threshold, this is below
0: poverty line. So, Dr. Popescu, can you give me a, um, a description of what Haiti was like before the earthquake and then what it was like when you went back with the students after the earthquake? Well, when we went before the earthquake, our visit was very short. We
1: just saw the area immediately beyond the border. Um, there were ma- massive problems with waste management, waste um, management there was no system of garbage disposal and that only got aggravated after the earthquake um most of the people lived in shanties uh, slums um a lot of people moved from the rural area into urban area most of them moving to port au prince in an attempt to find some opportunities there is a history with haiti you know we have a lot of civil unrest and uh, military regimes leaving people destitute, desperate, uh, leaving Haiti, which is on the same island with the Dominican Republic, totally brown, totally deforestated, Um, soil erosion is big. So all that was happening before the earthquake. So you know, Haiti already had its share of disasters before January
0: 2010. With Haitians living on less than $2 a day, what did most of them do for a living? Well, unemployment was very high.
1: There were all kinds of arrangements in which people would sell things. Um, There was a lot of border crossing um, that was mostly illegal, if you want. You have massive groups of of Haitian people going into the Dominican Republic, working on public projects, uh, working on infrastructure. Then, periodically, you'll have massive deportations in which they will be sent back to the Dominican Republic uh, to, to to Haiti from the Dominican Republic in the Dominican Republic most of the Haitian population lived in uh, lived concentrated in what is called the batay which were villages that were initially established around sugarcane plantations now became like the most impoverished areas in the Dominican Republic
0: so dr popescu once you and the students were in Haiti after the earthquake what was the housing situation there like well, we went to Haiti
1: about two months after the earthquake, um, over 200,000 people were dead following the earthquake, and there is an estimate of 2.3 million people homeless. So, you know, you have this massive loss of life, of infrastructure, of housing. Of course, what we saw first were the rubbles, uh, the demolished houses, um, the destruction, and then you would see the camps. Whenever there is a disaster, international organizations are stepping in, mainly when it has such a magnitude, to set up emergency housing. And you have displacement camps. Um, So a lot of people started moving, or being moved, or being evacuated to the camps. Um, The whole Port-au-Prince was filled with camps and tents. You would see the tent cities everywhere. But not only that, you will see the official tent cities, and then two months after the disaster, you would see makeshift camps. Because what happened is either people that couldn't get into the official camps trying to set up their own tents because they were, even if the house they lived in was not completely destroyed, they were afraid to go back. Or you had people from rural areas or from the surrounding areas around Port-au-Prince leaving their houses that were habitable and moving into makeshift camps why and this was uh, a secondary effect of the international you know strategy that was put in place international aid strategy what happens when you have emergency shelters when you have displacement camps post disaster is a lot of the aid is concentrated in the camps so you have, if you have any of the UN organizations setting up a camp, or if you have the International Federation of Red Cross setting up a camp, of course you will have a lot of aid coming to the camp. So people already living in poverty, dealing with losses, even though they had shelter, they chose in many instances to move into the camp so they will have access to services, to goods, just you know to, to, to meet their basic needs.
0: Like food and water?
1: Absolutely. Food, water, water was a big, big issue from the very beginning. It's still a big issue. Access to potable, clean water is a problem in Haiti, and as you know, that led to cholera, the
0: epidemics of cholera and so on. What were some of the challenges within the camps, even the official camps?
1: You have to think, you know, here you have people that went through massive loss. Some of them didn't know about their families. They had, you have women with children. Safety was a big issue. Of course, sexual victimization became a big problem. Um, all kind of violence was much more likely to happen when you have overcrowded you know, settings, like a camp. There was some monitoring of the camps. However, due to the large number of people that needed shelter, it was hard to do. It was hard to coordinate all the efforts in camp, to to ensure services and access to services. I will tell you about our first experience with actually visiting a camp, which was last year. I took a group of students during the Easter break and part of our um, study tour in Haiti we arranged with an organization working with women and trying to combat violence against women and all kinds of sexual victimizations, mostly focusing on the camps. So they worked with us, and we visited one of the largest camps in Port-au-Prince. At that point, you know, you still have a lot of people living in camps. Actually, by October uh, 2012, you still have 350,000 people that live in about 490, 496 camps around the country, most of them around Port or in Port-au-Prince. So, you know, this was in, in March of last year. We visited the camp, we got there, it was scorching hot. Um, there was no water. We were told we couldn't bring water to the people in the camp because there were too many, so how much water can you bring with a group of 12 students? So we went there and we were welcomed by a group of women that were willing to share with us some of their stories. They invited us in a tent. And one of the first um, shocking experiences we had, heartbreaking experiences, is that in all their misery, they were trying to make sure that we are okay, that we are comfortable, uh, offering us seats, (laughs) uh, trying to make sure that we are in the shade. Now we all had our water bottles with us. So there's a major ethical dilemma. You go there and you feel like you're there, like watching a show. How fair is this for the people in the camps? We knew we were there in an attempt to then work with the organization and strategize ways in which women can be more protected, in which safety can be increased. We also met with the the representatives from the International uh, International Organization of Migration. So we knew we had some good purposes and good objectives, but still the ethical dilemma was very present. And actually it was a very emotional moment for all the students in my group, uh, myself included. So in the process we talked about what they needed. And of course, there was massive need of everything. You see, the way in which we deal with disaster and post-disaster emergency shelters is they are set to address a crisis and to respond to an immediate need. They are not set from the perspective of the rights these people have and that's where you have problems okay so of course when you talk about needs you look at budgets you look at priorities you try to give as much as you can to provide as much shelter as you can for as many people as you can depending on the organizations that are working on that depending on the infrastructure in the country and the cooperation with the government but it's not the rights of the people that you are concerned with. So, of course, you see the same kind of situation in emergency housing and in emergency shelter. Before emergency housing comes emergency shelter, right, after a disaster in the U.S., you know. Of course, we have somewhat better monitored services, and we are doing much better when you talk about emergency shelters and temporary shelters, which is the next level, okay? So now people are set in camps. That will be the temporary shelter. The emergency shelter would be like the Superdome, during Katrina, okay? It's just very limited in time. You need immediate uh, shelter for people that are evacuated just to be protected until the disaster ends. And then they are moved in temporary shelters. In international environments, international contexts, these are the displacement camps, right? But then from there, you need to move them or find ways to either resettle them in their own houses. If the houses were not badly damaged, that can be done. Or relocate them. And you ro- relocate them in transitional housing and eventually in permanent housing. And that's where the problems appear. We are somewhat effective, somewhat effective, in providing an immediate response, okay, in making sure that the immediate needs, the survival needs are dealt with. But there is a missing link between then that humanitarian intervention and the sustainable development that needs to follow. The provision of housing that is linked to better infrastructure, access to services, access to jobs, access to education, because you cannot relocate people without taking into consideration all the other services they will need. So here we were in this camp, and the camp, the the International Organization of Migration, already had a strategy in place to relocate people and move them out of the camps, because these camps should not be long-term. They already were there for three years. It's already too much. Two years, you know, last year when we were there. Now, three years, we still have some camps in place. So there is a need to strategize and move them out, OK? Um, but this is very often done with no attention being paid to all the other aspects, OK? Transportation, of schools, jobs. Are there big employers that will be willing to train people and therefore make sure that there is some sustainability in place? And that's where the shift has to take place, in my opinion. That's where we have to, to move, to, to, to re, recalibrate our thinking from a needs-based approach in which we just respond to a crisis, we are reactive, we address the minimum we can address. To a rights-based approach in which if we think that all people have the right based on our humanity we all have the right to shelter and then realizing that rights can be not be looked at in isolation you cannot provide shelter without thinking of safety you cannot provide safety without thinking of ways in which people can support themselves make a living have access to healthcare all these aspects are. You know, in a rights paradigm, they all need to be looked at together. And this is what is still missing, not only in Haiti, but also here. You know, we talk Katrina, we talk Sandy, you know, look at the people that are still dealing with shelter issues and housing issues, and look at the housing policies and provisions we have in place in the United States. We're still not taking a rights-based approach.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Fordham Professor Dr. Marciana Popescu on Haiti's emergency housing needs and other challenges facing the Caribbean country following the deadly 2010 earthquake. Dr. Popescu, how do you start to implement a change in policy? Well, very good question. Probably if I would have the answer to
1: this, I would be rich or I would be the president of Haiti, which I don't intend to be. So um, there are various levels, uh, you know, when you start strategizing a policy change. And we have to look at the type of governance that's in place. And some of the excuses that you hear from many of the international organizations working with Haiti, and I don't want to to put down the work that the international organizations did in Haiti because they did an amazing work, but many times in our attempt to solve problems quickly, we don't involve the community. We say, well, there is no good governance. Uh, There is corruption. Yes, it is. But unless we work with people on the ground, with organizations, with government, we cannot really have a sustainable solution because whatever happens in Haiti, this is their Haiti. It's their country. It's not ours. And we don't want to make it ours. We want to support the community, the government, the organizations there to to do whatever they feel will respond to their needs will address their needs now when you talk about housing in haiti one of the biggest issues is linked to land ownership and these are the policies that need to be looked at because you want to relocate people you need some transitional housing at the beginning right but where will even if you have like organizations such as habitat for humanity that did a lot of Work in building temporary housing, in repairing whatever houses were there. So, you know, you want to work with these large organizations, you have donors, but you need to have land to build on. Now, the land situation in Haiti is either you have land that belongs to people that do not live in Haiti anymore, yet, you know, they have the ownership, so they need to be worked with to provide whatever, you know, paperwork is needed to build additional housing, right? Or you have the situation in which the land is, uh, belongs to the government. And, of course, the government has to approve. So that's another type of policy work that needs to be done. Or you have the situation in which
0: paperwork was lost. Dr. Popescu, when you and the group of Fordham students went to visit Haiti not too long ago and you uh, sat with these women who were very gracious and, and, and kind to talk to you, did they share any stories with you about struggles that they were going through while in these Would you consider them transitional homes? Because they're they're not... What would the proper definition be?
1: Basically, a displacement uh, camp is more like a temporary shelter. Uh, Now, you asked me about stories shared. You know, one of the biggest issues with the camps, and, you know, in any type of, like, temporary shelter arrangement, that would be a big issue, is safety. For women, of course, this becomes an even bigger issue. Imagine that those tents don't have doors, right? Um the lightening of the camps is not the best. Sometimes the best safety measure is to have lightening and have security guards that will patrol the camp. Now, of course, who are the security guards and how much trust can you put in the security guards? Uh, there were many heartbreaking, heart-wrenching stories shared with us um, in which sexual victimization uh, was at the peak of their stories. and. What shocked me and what broke my heart again and again was the fact that it became the new normal. You know, women almost accepted the situation as something that is now the new normal because it was happening so often. You know, like women would go to use the the latrines. The latrines were situated at the margins at the periphery of the camp, many times in the least lightened areas. So women will have to go there in the process they will be sexually victimized. Um, Or, you know, you would have women in the tent. During the day, they couldn't sleep because of the heat. One woman actually shared with us her... This was her biggest anxiety. She was sleep-deprived because during the day she could not get any rest because of the heat. And during the night, she didn't want to fall asleep because of safety issues. Anybody can come in the tent, right? But now, you know, this is the... next layer of victimization in which you don't feel safe anywhere anymore. You don't have a house where you could feel somewhat protected. You are in a camp. You are in a public space. There is no privacy. And of course, women will be the first ones to suffer. So whenever you think of housing, all these needs have to be taken into consideration, be it temporary shelter. Women and children
0: should still be protected. Can we talk a little bit about organizations that are uh, attempting to help with Haiti? What's hindering? some kind of synergy between organizations for emergency housing transition and permanent housing?
1: There is a very complicated context in Haiti, as I mentioned before. But also you add to this the disaster and the magnitude of the disaster. And to their credit, you know, you work with international organizations that step in immediately. And you have either international development agencies that are linked to the UN, you have the UNHCR that is really looking at ways to, to set displacement camps immediately, to respond to the immediate need for emergency shelters. You do have other international, um, inter- international non-government organizations, such as the International Federation of Red Cross. All these are trained to provide a humanitarian response, an emergency response, right? So you have, they have trained teams, they have professionals they, they work with. And because I have a bias for development and I'm looking okay, how can we really work with communities? I always had this question for humanitarian workers that I'm privileged to know and work with, and I understand where they're coming from. You know, you have this immediate situation in which saving lives is your mandate. So you have to choose, what do you do? Do you go in and work with communities or do you go in and save lives? And most of the times, most of the humanitarian organizations that provide immediate response post-disaster would go in and save lives. Okay. now in the process, my question for them always has been and continues to be, what kind of a living will these people have? One. It might appear to be a slower intervention if you want to involve the communities. But on the other hand, who will know best? Where is it best to, and safest to, to set shelter? Who you should involve? What should you know about the culture? What should you know about governance? What should you know about leaders, people to trust? than local entities, right? Who would know best? Where are the skills? So you have the option of paying a lot of money and bringing in experts okay? because you need a set of skills or spending a little bit more time. You might not do it immediately after disaster, but at least in the following stage, start looking at ways in which the smaller organizations, the representatives on the ground can sit to the table. You might think, okay, we we go in, we do what we need to do, and then we go out. But if there is no synergy with organizations on the ground, and there is no capacity that's left behind, then the next disaster will hit even worse. Then the international agencies will have to spend more in terms of money, resources, human lives, to really address the situation. Then, if they take the time to really look at ways in which community organizations, uh, government organizations, non government organizations can be involved. With Haiti, the other problem is There is a need to build governance, good governance, but you cannot build it unless you start looking at the people there, the skills there, okay? And add to them as needed, work with the local community, see what resources are needed from the outside. But there is a need to build capacity inside, you know? Talk about housing. You need to have policies in place. That was one of the biggest issues. You know, When we talked with one government official from one of the ministries last year, he told us there is no policy in place. And there will be no policy because at that point, they didn't have a vice president. You know, There were all these changes. So until the cabinet is elected, there will be no policy work. So during this time, you cannot work on a housing policy. So people are left in the camps you need to start working with the governments, looking for you know, sustainable solutions to really be able to then move into creating better po- housing policies. And all these are elements that need to be looked at. International organizations have their role, but we have to move away from a top-down approach and look at participatory approaches in which we really make use of the local resources, empower people, and learn from them so then we can
0: really support the local capacity. In another few years, if you go back, what would you, and you go back specifically and see those women who you sat with, who you talked with, what would you like to see for them? Well,
1: I would tell you what my dream, hope, uh, goal is. The first moment we decided to have these study tours attached to the class, I decided to to have these study tours. Uh, because students have to pay, self-paid, there is no support they receive. Um, I wanted to make sure that that's a great learning experience for them. But I didn't want to stop there because we always go, learn, and come back and leave the communities to themselves. And for me, it seems totally unfair and unjust. So I wanted to make sure that whatever we do, we contribute to the community. We are there for a longer time we become a presence in the community, and they can see for them as a partner in the process. So whatever is done in Haiti, be it for housing, be it for governance and governance development, being for you know, setting democratic structures, being for revising the legal framework, it has to start keeping these two things in mind. One, have new initiatives being located outside of Port-au-Prince. What happens is Port-au-Prince became this place that's the locus of everything. So people are moving into Port-au-Prince, leaving their areas, you have overcrowding, you have high poverty rates, high crime rates, you know. And it's not okay to have people uprooted and displaced from their own families. Think of women that are sent by their parents to Port-au-Prince and they end up being victimized again and again and again because they have no protection right? They go there because they hope it will be better. But if we would have initiatives that are started in rural areas, in remote areas, there'll be one step. The second, together with the first one, is to really have an intentional strategy in place that will target women. Meaning, I'm a social work professor, right? I do believe that social work education is needed. In Haiti, you will need a lot of social work education and because, you know, social work has the skills, provides people with the skills that they need for a comprehensive approach. And this is a situation in which the need is so big, the rights that are violated are so many that you need a comprehensive approach. And this is what social workers bring to the table, okay? But I'd like to see social work education targeting women. So, you know, you have, you know some sort of affirmative action policy in which women are given priority, in a country in which women are not usually given priority. So they will get an education, but not only that. Then you work with employers, you work with organizations, international organizations that are providing services in Haiti to make sure that they will hire these women. So then you create uh, a new group of employers excuse me, of employees that now have a set of skills that empower them so that they can can continue and educate women and participate in the decision-making and have places in government.
0: Finally, um, you said earlier there was a bit of a dilemma between whether or not you share your water, did you? Well, we couldn't share our water. We just had our own bottles. But we were very burdened
1: by that because here you have a group of students that were there because they wanted to make a difference and on the way back i remember we ended up having dinner so here we were sitting at a table in a restaurant and having water and having food and we couldn't touch it it was that effect that it had on us that we we just looked at the food and were overwhelmed realizing the disparity the injustice And on the other hand, the need to really provide access to resources as a key to sustainable solutions. It was overpowering. You know, what do you do in such instances? Do you give one bottle of water? Who do you give it to? You know, we could have given our bottles, but we were (laughs) 10 people, 12 people. The group of women that welcomed us were probably about 30 at the least and they had all children around them. So where do you even start? You know? The only thing that we could do and we felt we have to do, and we really took that as our mission, is to represent them, support the organization that works with them, make sure that their stories are being told, and going back. And this is what we'll do, actually, at the end of March, another group of students will go to Haiti, working with women to prevent sexual victimization and human trafficking, working with youth on reforestation projects and the Clean Stove Project, and also working with officials to see how can we support any type of strategic planning, any type of efforts that are done, but not dictating what needs to be done, rather offering our services and being willing to learn what they need, what we need to learn so we can support their efforts.
0: My thanks to today's Fordham Conversations guest, Dr. Marciana Popescu. I'd also like to thank my producer, Alan Kanlick. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarki and CityScape are next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.